Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we bust the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Today, we have got so many myths in front of us. For all of the topics that we have covered over the last five years, we've had plenty of myths, but I think that this show will probably be the be-all and end-all of getting rid of the myths that you've heard. We're going to tackle today safe sleep with Dr. James McKenna. Dr. McKenna, welcome. I'm glad to be here. In case you're not familiar with him, let me tell you about Dr. McKenna. He is a biological anthropologist, and he pioneered the first behavioral and electrophysiologic studies on mothers and infants sleeping together and apart. He is the nation's foremost authority and press spokesperson on topics pertaining to infant feeding and sleep issues, sleep development, and breastfeeding and is known worldwide for his work. Dr. McKenna coined the new term breast sleeping to describe the safe combination of mother-infant co-sleeping and breastfeeding. Dr. McKenna directed the Mother-Baby Behavioral Sleep Laboratory at the University of Notre Dame for 22 years. He has received numerous accolades, including the Anthropologist in the Media Award for promulgating the importance of SIDS research, infant sleep, breastfeeding, and other anthropological concepts to the public. He has published, wait till I tell you this, over 180 peer-reviewed articles and chapters on SIDS and related topics. He is the author of seven books, And his new book will come out in 2020, Safe Infant Sleep. It will be published in January. So without further ado, then, uh, I I can't tell you how honored I am to have Dr. McKenna on the show because this is just such an important topic. Dr. McKenna, before we get really, truly underway here... (laughs) Could you help us to define some terms? Because people use some of these sleeping terms as though they are equivalent or synonymous, and they are not. So help us out with, there's four or five big ones that come to my mind, but uh, go ahead, set us straight. Um, Well, the first one is what really is co-sleeping, and actually it's not a particularly radical concept. Uh, Basically, it refers to any situation in which a mother and an infant are within sensory range of each other such that each can um, respond to the sensory cues of the other. And insofar as that's true, you could say that co-sleeping is one of the more diverse activities that humans, like most of us do, um, engage with. And that is to say there's probably as many ways that mothers and babies can arrange this particular situation as there are cultures in the world doing it. So it's uh, it's really the, what the... The most important prerequisite is that the proximity um, is uh, close enough so that they are able to read or respond, as I say, to touches and 
sounds and smells and movement. That's the critical part of it. Yes. Now, bed sharing is a specific type of co-sleeping, and that's where the controversy comes in. Actually, on one side of the, the um, discussion or the discourse, it isn't controversial at all. Now, at least, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which was a big step when they took it, was to oh, recommend yeah. that babies for the first year of life stay within the room of a committed caregiver. So basically, they were saying never let a baby sleep alone um, in a different area than where the caregiver is. So that was, that was, that's the good part. The problem is that babies like to navigate themselves <laughs> as close yes. as they possibly can to their moms. And so once they get a little sense and a feel, especially with breastfeeding mothers, of what it's like to actually be snuggled up to the mother, that's really what they want. Yes. And so bed sharing becomes controversial because it can be safe, but it can be dangerous. So, you know, whether or not it is safe depends on exactly how it is being practiced. And thus, mm-hmm. you have kind of a continuum of tremendous benefits, including protection, that can range all the way to risky and, and lethal if it's practiced under dangerous circumstances. So that's the complexity of it. And that's probably what's given rise to the controversy. Mm-hmm. Agree. And so would you say that room sharing is roughly equivalent to rooming in? Yes, they're the same thing. I must admit, I don't like the notion of room sharing because it isn't really the room or the inert walls of the room that's really important. (laughs) It's really really mother sharing or person sharing. And and that's what's making the environment protective. More inspections by mother. Mother is able to be more vigilant, to pay attention to sounds as well as lack of sounds. And the baby is able to hear and and evoke and elicit just by virtue of its own behavior, uh, breastfeeds if it wants it by just simply touching the mother's chest or making little sucking noises or rocking its head back and forth. So I've watched all this on hundreds, if not thousands, of videotapes. So it's really been wonderful to see this engagement, this vibrant engagement that goes on. What a good word. And I must say that a few years ago, I read your article where the article was titled Breast Sleeping. And I said, whoa, now here is a term that we have not heard before. And it was while reading that article that I realized you coined the term breast sleeping. So talk to us about that term. Breast sleeping, one word, that's important. And my reason for choosing it in that form rather than just breast and then sleeping is because I wanted to put forth the notion that this is a singular evolved system. Maternal sleep, infant sleep, or breastfeeding patterns, that is to say breastfeeding patterns in the sense of how many per session, uh, per night uh, the intervals between the feeds is determined by mother's presence and the degree of her proximity. So her sleep is determined by the baby's sleep, which is determined by the baby's hunger patterns and what mother is doing. So you can't really understand any of those components, the actual feeds, number, interval, and even the duration that mother's willing to breastfeed over a number of months, you can't understand how infant sleep cycles unfold, that is minutes in one stage versus stage two or three or four or rapid eye movement sleep or or, um, arousal and awakenings, and you can't understand maternal sleep because it is one single bio-behavioral system that's very integrated and can't be really pulled apart. And 
to be honest with you, Maria, this is the funny part of it. I was in Australia <laughs> getting ready for the next day <clears throat> where I think there were 2,000 Australian women waiting to hear this particular lecture. And I, was, I fell asleep early and because I was off, you know, from jet lag. Oh, because, and yes, absolutely. I had a dream. <laughs> and in my dream, uh, somebody asked me, well, what are you going to be talking about tomorrow? And in the dream, I said, oh, I'm going to be breast, talking about breast sleeping. And a little voice popped out in my head while I'm sleeping. He says, Jim, that, that's really good. That's a good word. That's a good you better word. wake up and write it down. And I actually did. And the next morning, I'm introducing a word I had no idea I would ever be saying. And, you know, it, it just makes me laugh to really think about it. I was trying to say, I'm going to be in the dream. I'm, trying, I'm going to be talking about breastfeeding in the context of bed sharing. And instead, this little word, breast sleeping, popped out. So I honestly don't know who should get credit for it. <laughs> oh, well, I think it's proof positive that when we have dreams, our subconscious is working and sometimes working well for us. And in that case, uh, the fact that, well, now I, I don't know if everybody on the planet knows what breast sleeping is, but most definitely when I hear or read breast sleeping, I know that Dr. McKenna is in there somewhere. And I think that it's really important that people understand this. And that's why I wanted to start with it, because there are so many things that we think we understand about sleep. And they might apply to the formula-fed baby, but they don't necessarily apply to the breastfed baby. And I keep asking myself, when is it that we are going to realize that breastfed babies behave differently, they gain weight differently, they digest differently, they do everything else differently? Uh, so th making this distinction is really important. So help us then with what are the benefits of co-sleeping bed sharing, or anything else you want to discuss in there? Well, in, in, from a simple perspective, the closer the baby is to the mother, the more the breastfeeds. In other words, it doubles or triples when you move from a breastfeeding, exclusively breast, even an exclusively breastfeeding baby sleeping 8 to 10 feet away around the corner you can get half the number of breastfeeds. And in this sense, um, we know that breastfeeding is dose-dependent. The degree of protection, which is very significant, is in some ways dependent, on, dependent upon the number of feeds the baby gets each night. So that alone, that proximity that uh, comes with the normative pattern of breastfeeding your baby um, is obviously the more optimal uh, form that it takes. Now, I was able to really look at very carefully what the physiological differences are when a baby is breast sleeping. And what we find is that the mother and the baby both spend more time in the lighter stages of sleep. They induce brief transient arousals in each other that we measured by way both of the behavior under infrared video filming, but also in looking at what was going on in the baby's brain and the mother's brain. So we were able to look at the engagement, physiological engagement, all through the night with these kind of partner-induced arousals. And you might wonder, well, what's so great about arousals? I thought we like uh -huh. to get babies sleeping, you know? Well, it so happens for young babies, it isn't the consolidation of sleep that's important at all. It's that babies are feeding a lot and they're engaging with its mother's Absolutely. body. Absolutely. Because don't forget that the infant our human babies are born neurologically the least mature primates of all with only 25% of their brain volume. 
They are the slowest developing and the most dependent on the mother's body, um, and that's the only environment to which our babies are adapted. And I've coined this little expression, nothing makes sense about what a baby can or cannot do except in light of the mother's body. And that is exactly true. They don't care mm-hmm. how green the lawn is. They don't care about right. predators. <laughs> right. All they respond to is what its body is telling it as regards the sensations of touching and sound and movement and smells that comes with this breast sleeping context. So I've been able to put together some differences with the help of uh, Helen Ball, who you may know oh, she's yes. sort of the equivalent of me yes. in Great Britain. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've been able to look at the really critical differences in a breast sleeping uh, context, which means bed sharing, and a bed sharing formula or bottle fed. Right from the start, when breastfeeding is involved in bed sharing, the baby is always placed on the back, the, the important supine position. Because, of course, it makes sense. It's the only way the baby get, can get to and from the breast by sleeping on its back. You can't find a prone sleeping baby, which is a significant risk factor for SIDS, trying to get yes. to the breast successfully, right? So already with that instruction, the mother's going to put the baby on its back. But moreover, there is a particular universal position that's adopted by all mothers. They didn't learn it in school, where they kind of um, arch their bodies around their babies, often pulling up their knees under the baby's feet, and the baby is placed at mid-chest level, right near the breast. Now, oftentimes in non-bed-sharing situations, mothers will put their babies up on the pillows, which is dangerous, or certainly higher up on the bed where they have a, a better chance of in, you know, breathing into a pillow and getting into some kind of uh, hypercarbon um, uh, situation. So the position of the baby... now. I've looked at this question, too. Where do babies look? What do they do when they're there, sleeping, you know, chest level with their mothers? Well, one thing for sure, they spend 90 to 100% of their night staring right at their mothers while they're sleeping. (laughs) And they're drawn to her smells, you know, her breast milk smells, so on and so forth. Um, If I can, I'd like to interrupt and uh, tell you that we've got to take a break, but don't lose your train of thought and everybody don't go away. I'm Marie and I will be back with Dr. McKenna momentarily. Come right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff 
or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Born to be Breastfed. I'm your host, Marie Biancuso. I am here today with Dr. James McKenna, who is the author of several books as related to sleeping with your baby. So, Dr. McKenna, before we left, you were talking about the posture that the mother assumes, and I thought it was very interesting that you said nobody teaches her in school. She just reflexively does this. And mm-hmm. I want to tell you that I am very sure that I have worked more nights on a postpartum floor than most people who are listening to our show. Uh, I worked at hospitals for years. I was a night nurse for years. And you are absolutely right. That is absolutely what they do. I, As you were talking, I could see that whole scene unfold in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, uh, I think that what you're saying there is that the posture that the mother assumes somewhat sets her up for the baby being on his back. Is that true? Is that oh, what yes. you're saying? Very true. It's a whole cascade of of events, where the baby is looking, how often the baby moves, how often the mother moves, how often the mother breastfeeds, the sensitivity of the mother to the sounds and the behavior of the baby that that actually provides the basis of needed, when when it is needed, um, interventions by the mother and permits this tremendous vigilance. You know, we evolved sleep to be, among other things, to be very responsive to what is going on in the environment. So these, these ideas, these myths about mothers, oh, if they fall asleep, they're not going to be tracking their baby or know that their arm is laying across their mouth. This is absolutely untrue. Probably the greatest gift isn't so much sleep itself, but in terms of the environment within which maternal sleep and, and adult sleep evolved, reversibility of sleep always had to occur because where it evolved is there were animals, there were snakes, there were Mm. poisonous spiders, and we had to be constantly, while sleeping, alert to these kinds of environmental changes or none of us would be here today, I can assure you. So this notion that mothers will get habituated to their babies and not be responsive to them if they're lying next to them is a huge myth. The the ability of us all, even non-parents, are able to monitor what's going on in their external environment as they should. 
Um, we yes. all know how hard yes. it is to get a good night's sleep when you have to get up at 4.30 in the morning. You're, you're kind of <laughs> right. waking up, <laughs> yes. you know, and yes. you're afraid. Well, that, that, that consciousness is always there. And think of owning and having the most valuable thing you've ever had in your life and uh, putting that... Um, in the context of understanding, are you going to be able to pay attention to it? And I tell you, absolutely, you will be paying attention to it. Right. Now, it also requires you to make a conscious decision that you want to pay attention to your baby in bed. And I always tell parents, if you're sleeping with your babies, then you should both agree that you will be attentive to that baby. It's sort of like seeing that mm. little advertisement mm. on a on a car, baby in car. Well, I think that when you yes. go to bed, all the parents should also say baby in bed. My baby is in bed. You know, I will be alert to it. And you make that decision, and indeed, you will be very sensitive. We, we looked at the degrees by which mothers arouse in relationship to what something that their baby has done in the middle of the night. We found that 60% of mothers' arousals occur plus or minus two seconds um, following their babies arousal. For babies, similarly, they developed a very um, precise sensitivity to their mothers. 40% of their arousals occurred plus or minus two seconds following the arousal of their mothers. So the question was put to me, wouldn't mothers just kind of habituate and not you know, be attentive as well. But what we actually found is the longer the mother over months was sleeping with her baby, the more sensitive, the more arousals were induced by the baby. So that that myth of not being able to maintain a consciousness of what's happening to your baby is is a big one that needs to be, um, you know, dismissed. Absolutely. Well, I'm thinking, I'm no anthropologist, but I'm just thinking that if the mother, as you say, habituated like that, the species would have died out, right? Of course. <laughs> well, Maria, you put, your, you put your finger on, you know, a comeback line that when people tell me how dangerous bed sharing is, and I said, I'll say, excuse me, if uh-huh. bed sharing had been as dangerous as you are talking about, none of us would be here today, because the only reason we're here today is that Forevermore, throughout our hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, the only way babies made it was sleeping right next to their mother and breastfeeding through the night. And that, you know, that's the beginning point. This notion of trying to pathologize no matter what, no matter what the condition, no matter who the parent is, no matter what the circumstances are, that sleeping by your baby is incredibly dangerous is absolutely not true. It depends on how it is being done, not the practice itself. And I wanted to illustrate that, uh, how easy it is to think differently um, about something that seems to be more culturally acceptable as opposed to one that's being tried to be made into the boogeyman of some sort. The double standard that's employed when babies are uh, sleeping in cribs and they tragically die. Mm -hmm. Suppose Mm -hmm. a baby was sleeping prone in a crib and in a room by itself. Um, and it was sleeping prone, as I mentioned. The cause of the death would be said to have been from SIDS, from sleeping prone, and from having the crib not in the same bedroom as the parent. If that same baby had died sleeping prone in a bed-sharing environment, the cause of the death would be said to be suffocation, asphyxia, a sudden unexpected infant death rather than a SIDS. The solution to the death of the baby would be to eradicate bed sharing um, with skipping over the very details of why that baby specifically died, which was prone. The solution for the baby having died prone in a crib is to teach safe 
crib use. That is to say, putting babies on their backs in a crib and always putting the crib next to the parent's bed. So this is one of the issues we've been dealing with, that this this labeling and the underlying assumptions being made um, that do not look at specifically what, in fact, are independent risk factors, totally independent of, in this case, bed sharing. Well, there's this whole cultural piece, and you just alluded to that a little bit. And I'm thinking about my mother. I was teaching a course in Richmond, Virginia, and as was my custom, I would usually call her in the evening. And it was the evening that the AAP had come out with their statement on sleeping, and I believe it was 2005. Yes. And mm-hmm. she asked me, well, how did my course go? I said, oh, it was it was very difficult for me to stay on topic because everybody had all of their hackles up about this statement that just came out from the AAP today about SIDS. And so my mother and I were chatting, and she just couldn't understand what I was saying. And so somewhere in there, I realized that the word SIDS didn't register with her. Uh, and uh-huh. uh, I said, well, mom, crib death. Oh, she says crib death. For heaven's sakes, why didn't you say so? <laughs> and at that moment, it suddenly dawned on me that babies have died in cribs for decades because yes. that's why they called it crib death. Exactly. It's sort of, she pushed me out of the idea that baby in crib equals risk for uh, death, because Mm -hmm. clearly this has been done in other cultures. Now, my mother was born and raised in Italy, so of course she thought we Americans were kind of goofy that we didn't sleep with our babies anyway. Right. Uh, (laughs) But can you speak to this in the sense of, There is some perception, at least with the clients and even the professionals that I work with, that think that automatically, if you put that baby in the the crib, that he is 100% not going to ever die in the crib. And oh, by the way, if he's in the bed with the mother, that somehow that is automatically the biggest risk factor in the world. So can you help us to understand here how, how do these statistics uh, work and how do we look at them in a different way? Well, that's culture for you. What has happened is for almost a century, at least for 75 years, the question everybody thought was important to ask, is it safe to sleep with your baby? When in fact, the question with the even existing science at the time should always have been, is it safe yeah. not to? All we have to do is go look at mammals and think of little puppies breastfeeding with their mothers, etc. And here we have the most vulnerable, slowest developing, neurologically immature primate human of all. And somehow um, we think that it's okay to pull that baby in whatever way away from its mother and as early in life as possible, put it in a room all by itself and walk down to the rest of the, the bedrooms and let the baby be. How that got into this cultural literature, it started simply by physicians who really knew nothing about human development at all. A number (laughs) of white physicians that never even took care of their own babies that just permitted cultural ideologies and their own preferences to say what was best for the baby without any empirical biological studies that should have begun with asking the question, not 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 where babies sleep, but who is the baby? 
Um, what is the biological evidence that suggests that babies are similar and or different from other creatures in terms of what they do need? And it would quickly arise if we did larger empirical studies, we could ask, well, where do human beings in general put their babies? And guess what? You look around the world cross-culturally, and 90% of cultures all sleep next to their baby. You could ask the question, well, what do other primates do with their babies? Oh, my gosh. Mm. They carry their babies everywhere (laughs) they go. They never break contact with them. And this is what primates do. They, They take a long time to grow up. They're very vulnerable when they're young. Their mother carries them and breastfeeds them, and rarely for years do they separate from them. If you Absolutely. wanted to look at just simply physiology, um, you put a little monkey in, uh, in a cage or whatever, as they did in the 50s. They're not going to do this anymore, but they made them orphans, and they first put them on a terry cloth little um, miniature steel mother and then put another monkey on a steel mother with a bottle sticking out to try to prove Freud's uh, satiation theory, you know, that the the babies fall in love with the person that's feeding them and then they generalize and love everybody else. Well, these little monkeys even, they wanted nothing to do with the little bottle on the steel cold monkey substitute. It took great satisfaction, though, from the non-feeding mother that had a soft terry cloth towel wrapped around it so it could cling to it and get some kind of affectionate sense. So even with monkeys, you're finding that they are in need of warm touch, touching uh, stimulation from their caregivers. As we all do, even as adults, we need that touching. There's no question about it. Hey, everybody, don't go away. I'm here today with Dr. James McKenna. We will be right back after this short break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Your 
are listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuzo or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Dr. James McKenna, who is an internationally recognized expert on sleep for infants. Uh, Dr. McKenna, I have to tell you the story that happened some years ago. You had just released your book called Sleeping with Your Baby, A Parent's Guide. And at the time, I was writing a, a newsletter that was distributed by hard copy. And I was rather interested in this book, but I decided that the person I was going to ask to review it was a pediatrician friend of mine. And so I set up the book and I said, would you be willing to uh, review this for my newsletter? He said, sure. And I did not prompt him in any way about what needed to be in the review. When I got his review back, and I only let him have about 150 words, (laughs) I was astonished. Astonished at the very first sentence that he wrote, and I remember it verbatim, even though it was several years ago. The very first sentence he gave was, this book has totally changed my practice. Wow. <laughs> and in the review, he basically said, I have been schooled by all of the physicians. And the physicians are all in the mode of thinking that there is some evidence that shows that this is dangerous. And in fact, having read Dr. McKenna's book, I'm thinking that I'm telling parents the wrong thing. Well, and he was, we know that. But the other thing is, how many pediatricians out there have not read your book. They are scaring the bejeepers off from parents. Then, by the way, we have the public health recommendations. And even I, uh, I'm no expert, but I think I know enough about this to say to parents, sleeping with your baby is normal. Breastfeeding with your baby in the bed is what people have done for centuries. But honestly, I am very fearful to give them any advice about actually doing it because I, too, feel very spooked. And, oh, by the way, I am just a nurse. So what could I possibly know? They're going to listen to their doctor. So I think my question to you is, where, how do we help parents to understand that they've got to make their own decision? We've kind of taken that away from them because we've scared yeah. them. And then, by the way, there are parents that I know doggone well. They are sleeping with their babies. There's no doubt in my mind. But they don't want to tell me that. And when they do finally tell me that, they say, oh, but I didn't want to say so because I knew you'd disapprove. Can you address mm-hmm. this? <laughs> well, it's it's all about our cultural history and the kind of centralization of medical authoritative knowledge that we've all benefited by, et cetera, et cetera. But it isn't really anybody's fault that we have come up with these myths that you were asking me to speak of, that you need babies need to be taught to self-soothe. They don't need to be taught to self-soothe. All babies learn how to self-soothe in their own time. No. Um, and it's been compared with in, individuals, little baby, four-month-old babies becoming independent. 
Um, what in the world does it mean for a four-month-old or six-month-old baby to become independent? That the, how you get it is to separate the baby as early in life as possible. Absolutely insane. Anyway, I'm just telling you that it's about culture history and the way in which our society has used individualism and autonomy as an ideal value without ever really knowing, well, how do you, in fact, really produce children that are more confident and more happy and satisfied with their lives, et cetera, not afraid to make decisions and engage with people, so on and so forth. And what's happened in the world of sleep, never before have cultural values and ideologies been mistaken for science, just mm. as this pediatrician was surprised to find out. There was never yes. any empirical finding telling that... <laughs> babies benefited at all from sleeping separately. And in fact, we had, imagine this, we had 500,000 Euro American babies die from something, a mysterious illness called sudden infant death syndrome. And not any time during those 50 years did anybody, it ever occurred to anyone that could this really be the result of that crib or where that crib is placed. It was called crib death, but why were the, why weren't people saying, wait a minute, is it something about the crib or the way we're using the crib that has caused these uh, uh, tragic events that other cultures, if you ask them about mm. it, don't even know it exists and don't know what you're talking about? And so it, that's the power of culture that no one actually said, hey, we're calling this thing crib death, caught death, call it what you know other cultures do. So why aren't we asking questions about where we're putting babies and how we're yeah. engaging with babies. Western culture has not been kind to babies. And I have not to say all. the father of, of psychology um, <laughs> himself, um, David Watson, um, was probably the coldest fish you'd ever want to meet. He really <laughs> did say that he didn't believe a child ever could get too little affection. Um, and, you know, I really had to look that up to see, could he possibly have said that? And, well, indeed he did. But I'm just saying you that we have this... Uh, a long history of of thinking that too much intimacy or responding to these little vulnerable babies is going to, quote, spoil them, when in fact it's just the opposite. Early response to babies leads to confidence, leads to individuals, babies, at least the long-term co-sleeping studies that are more comfortable with their bodies, more comfortable with affection, um, have a rosier or more optimistic view. And now we're learning that those children that, from childhood have co-slept are actually um, in a psychological, more resilient condition and state than are these individuals that, like myself included, that were enforced solitary sleep just because someone sitting on a stool one day said, oh, yeah, I just think it's real good for babies to be separate from their mothers and dads, to give mom and dad more intimacy and all these things that go along with it. But no one ever really asked, well, is it good for babies? And what would be the basis of knowing what is, in fact, appropriate and normal? Because no data was ever used to um, actually uh, be taken to that question and answer to that question. Well, certainly you have done dozens and dozens and dozens of studies. How difficult is it for you to be doing that sort of research And do you experience some limitations in your work, given the social stigma? Well, I have quite a bit of it throughout my (laughs) career. I always always have imagined myself um, as a researcher in this area, um, swimming upstream 
Yes. Um, you know, doing a, uh, that little uh, breath stroke and taking breaths real quickly and then watching all the other people going in the other directions, uh, floating in their little uh, tubes, uh, drinking martinis, going with the current. And I'm barely gasping for air, but I'm maintaining, I'm maintaining. And now I think that we're really in a situation where the tide is turning and it's oh, coming, it's a bottom up. Uh, kind of revolution, and it was breastfeeding that did it, because breastfeeding, as is, uh, I'm suggesting um, by virtue of that word, breastfeeding and sleeping closer and closer and closer is in fact just biologically appropriate. It's how the system was designed to work. So the next stage is now we know that about heck millions of mothers every night in the United States are sleeping with their babies. Um, now we just have to get them to be able to feel comfortable discussing it with their physicians because the more physicians hear what parents are really doing, the more uh, culturally acceptable it's going to become. It's already here, Maria. That's the thing. Um, just millions of mothers are sleeping with their babies because we have 81% of moms leaving the hospitals now breastfeeding. And of those, perhaps, what would it be, uh, 2 million or so mothers that are breastfeeding, you have anywhere from 42% is the lowest percentage to 81% of them sleeping with their babies. So it's here. But the acknowledgement of it. Now, I also want to point out, when you say the American Academy of Pediatrics have made this recognition, are you, do you know that you're talking about 12 people that could be replaced person by person with people with equal credentials that have published just as much as they in the same journals as they who would come up with very different recommendations. Oh, that's, that's the troubling part of this is, and I don't know how our societies has got itself into this situation that 12 people that don't know your family know nothing about you in something mm-hmm. as kind of complex as bed sharing, which is and must be the beginning of a conversation, not the end of a conversation, because it's composed of many variables. What kind of bed? What's in the mind of the mother or the father? Are they breastfeeding? Are they bottle feeding? Um, do they know what's safe in the bed sharing environment? It goes on and on and on. So I like to say in a silly kind of way, bed sharing is not bed sharing is not bed sharing. You have to have a right. conversation about it. And so this lumping that you're, we're all complaining about is inappropriate, and it's especially inappropriate because these 12 to 15 people do know that there is a very significant scientific counterpoint and that just simply lumping all babies and families in the same category in terms of saying all bed sharing is hazardous mm. is actually denying mm. what could in many ways be saving some babies' lives from the increased breastfeeding and from the contact with the mother and the ability of mothers sleeping close to intervene should something go wrong. So well, this will be changed. When you mention those 12 people, the first thing that comes to my mind is every time that the AAP comes out with a statement, good, bad, or indifferent, I try to remind myself that everybody is going to interpret that as one size fits all, whether it is the sleeping or the pacifiers or the vitamin D or anything else. We assume 
that that is a one-size-fits-all recommendation when, in fact, hello, excuse me, but we are raising individuals here. So it seems to me that there needs to be a little bit more uh, analysis of that. But anyway, uh, hey, everybody, don't go away. I am here today with Dr. James McKenna. Do not go away. We will be right back. (laughs) So stay tuned right after this break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, and I have the great privilege today of hosting uh, Dr. James McKenna. Dr. McKenna, I have been following your work for as many years as I can remember. But tell me, how did you get interested in this topic of co-sleeping? It makes me happy to talk about this. It was in preparation for <laughs> it was in preparation for my own baby being born, and of course, uh-huh. even though I was studying monkeys and ape infants at that time, um, the development and how environments shift caregiving patterns between different primate species. It was almost as if when it was my turn to have a baby, it's like, oh my God, I don't know anything. I have to go to the (laughs) bookstores and get every book on babies so uh, Joanne and I, my wife and I, can raise the most beautiful, beloved baby we can. 
So my wife's an anthropologist. Keep that in mind, too, but an archaeologist. I'm a biological anthropologist. But in any event, we read the books, and we looked at each other one day and says, you know, either everything we have learned about who a human being is, who a human infant is, and what we need as a species was wrong, or... All of these books have nothing to do with babies. It has nothing to do with them. What it has to do with this recent cultural ideology is as to who we want babies to become and how we propose we might get them there. It had nothing to do with babies, and I was really shocked. You know, I had studied yeah. the effects of short-term separation of monkey and ape infants. Like, I mean three hours, and the longest time of the separation were three days. During that time period, these primates whose brains are twice as large as ours at birth, dysregulated. They had cardiac arrhythmias. They had breathing difficulties. The babies, they couldn't sleep. They had incredibly high cortisol levels, stress hormones, etc. They stopped eating. Some of them got pneumonia because their immune systems, you know, became, you know, um, unsatisfactory. Anyway, some died. And I'm thinking, here we have, a human primate, the least neurologically mature, the most dependent on mother's physiological regulation and support, literally compensating for the immaturity of all of these systems, thermoregulation, respiration, immunity, digestion, hormonal control. Everything is immature in the human infant. And the only way you could have ever given birth and keep these kinds of babies alive is to actually provide regulatory, a regulatory microenvironment. And, and who or what is that? And that is the mother's mm. body. And Absolutely. that what has been taken, imagine the decades where we actually separated our babies. We gave them formula, which made everything like this possible. You realize the formula and artificial milk. Yeah, oh, right. It, yes. You could separate that, yourself from the baby. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And it made that deep sleep, that notion that the more the baby sleeps, the better. Well, my research has shown that that's exactly what has made babies susceptible to SIDS, that babies, when they are fed formula and our cows milk, they sleep too long, too hard, too soon. The ability of these babies to be conditioned to sleep has nothing to do with the baby's ability to arouse from sleep when they have to terminate an apnea or breathing pause. So babies born, for example, with an arousal deficiency are exactly the ones you do not want consolidating deep sleep before their bodies are, in fact, prepared for it. So my my technical research on the polysomnography have showed very definitely when babies sleep with their mothers, they spend more time in lighter stages of sleep, which is appropriate for the ability of the baby to get awake from when they are having a breathing pause. And similarly, I was able to show comparatively that when mothers sleep with their babies, they too shift their deep sleep and make it light sleep, which makes mother much more capable to intervene and be vigilant, respond to her baby's needs. So as I'm hearing you talk, it seems to me like the people who have been trained in medical knowledge have little or no understanding of anthropologic norms. Right. Yes. And yes. we are, I said this a while ago in as I was teaching my lactation uh, comprehensive course, I said, and we are primates. And somebody said something to the effect of, but Marie, we're not animals. And I said, well, we're not plants, <laughs> are we? <laughs> so, 
you know, why would we as large primates be any different than the gorilla or the orangutan or whatever it is? And so I hear you saying that this science seems to be unknown to the medical world, but they're the ones that get to make the recommendations and then the rest of us all sort of worship at at the feet of those who have said it. Well, I want to just, you know, forgive the physicians. They do everything they can in a very short period of time to learn everything to make babies safe and to keep them healthy. This is good. It isn't their fault that there doesn't seem to be any time in medical school to understand that biology, or another word for it, is the evolution of humankind will never be nullified. When babies go into a well-baby checkup, for example, um, and you would expect this. There's cultural checkoffs. Is the baby doing this at this age? Is the baby doing that right. at that age? Right. And that's how we do it. The assumption is that the baby brings literally at this point nothing into that doctor's office that could explain its behavior except that it's a baby. But right. the truth of it is, out there you could see, out there in the waiting room, as babies are at different ages, etc., for a moment picture our whole evolutionary history from the first bipeds to Homo Mm. habilis to Homo erectus Mm. to Neanderthal to modern people. That is a baby coming into this swell baby checkup that has 3.6 million years of evolutionary history of biological adaptations that it can exhibit if given the right environment to do it. And guess what that environment is? It's the mother's body. That baby's body's genes will find expression, heating up, responding to mother's breathing, breathing in relationship to mother's chest movement, breathing in relationship to the carbon dioxide being expelled by mother's exhalation, where the baby brings a little bit in, the phrenic nerve and the chemoreceptors monitor it, and guess what? They breathe just a little bit faster by getting these cues of CO2, a CO2 you know, stimulate Carbon dioxide. Um, the, yeah. the, the respiratory system to get rid of it. I'm just saying that that's what the baby's body is adapted to, not the prairie or, you know, they're not <laughs> bipedal yet or upright walking or right. anything. It, but you it's, put them on the mother's ventrum, every single baby in the world, no matter what the culture, their bodies will do exactly the same thing. Yes, and I up. think that... Um, If we had Dr. Nils Bergman here or if we had uh, Dr. Suzanne Colson here, she said the same thing on my show as did Nils Bergman. Uh, Before we go, and we've got really just less than a minute left, uh, Dr. McKenna, tell us the name of your new book and when you're expecting it to come out. Well, I'm going to put a little more science in it. I'm I'm trying to model it after my wonderful colleague, Meredith Small, who I think you might have Mm -hmm. talked to, uh, our babies, ourselves, a little more substance to it, but I'm sure parents will all be able to understand it. But I've been able to put it in a larger kind of biological and social and cultural context and talked about very specific issues. And the the new epigenetics that Mm. is documenting, for example, how genes, unlike what we knew before, actually are affected by what's happening to babies in the first six months, such that you can actually determine what's going on at the molecules of the DNA of the baby itself and it has implications for intergenerational transmission. We now have information on how remarkable it is that parents can actually shape the architecture of their baby's brains 
We know now that waiting behind a newborn baby's eyes are tens of thousands of new undeveloped neurons we never knew were there. And on the first day of life, they start a migration up into the executive area of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. And where those neurons go, what they become, and how fast they, they change their morphology is strictly dependent on what that baby is experiencing in the first three to six months of life. It's a remarkable discovery. And that is finally, just I'll outstanding. Just say, and yeah. certainly, um, I would encourage everybody to uh, explore one or more of Dr. McKenna's books. Uh, he has already had seven books. His next book called Safe Infant Sleep will be published in January of 2020. I will be one of the first to uh, applaud that book. And in the meanwhile, I would just like to encourage you. uh, You'll never get enough of Dr. James McKenna. Trust me. He's always got something to say that is uplifting, encouraging, scientifically valid, and yet very easy to read. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. James McKenna, for being with us today. Maria, thank you so much for your wonderful, vibrant conversation. I really appreciate what you do for mothers and babies, too. It's marvelous. Well, we are all in this together, and I would like to thank our audience throughout the world. Thank you. Without you, we don't have a show. So thank you for being here. And remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.